0: God, we are thankful uh, to be able to gather uh, here this morning. Lord, I know that many of us walk in today after a week with extended family and friends, and uh, Lord, there is a wide spectrum of emotions. Lord, I know that some walk in uh, here this morning refreshed and uh, filled with joy. Others of us uh, are burdened and weighed down. Uh, Lord, for some of us, this week was a really hard week. Um, Lord, I, I know um, Lord, that you know that, know that you're faithful, Lord, I know that you will give your people exactly uh, what they need when they need it. And so, Lord, I ask you to do that, that you would use 1 Samuel 20 to to feed your people or to instruct our hearts by the power of your word. So I pray that you'd use your spirit to do just that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Things that are important come with a cost, I want you to think for a moment about uh, what you consider to be valuable uh, in your own life. A relationship, maybe being a good spouse, a good parent, a good employee, uh, maybe being physically fit, or a good cook, or your house, your car, whatever it is. Almost everything that we consider to be valuable uh, involves a cost, price to pay, sacrifices to be made. Just a simple uh, example in my own life. Uh, Growing up, I wanted to be a really good basketball player. Uh, I got the itch early on in elementary school to be as good as I possibly could be. And so almost every single day growing up, uh, you would find me spending hours uh, working on my jump shot, working on my dribbling skills because I wanted to be good. It also came with a cost. I had to, to give up other things in order to invest uh, in practice basketball. I gave up time with friends uh, at at times. I had to give up watching TV on certain days and and so on and so forth. There's always a cost uh, to that which is important to us. And the same is true with following Jesus. There's a cost of obedience, which is a way of thinking about Christianity that uh, honestly doesn't get uh, emphasized uh, enough, We tend to emphasize what Jesus does for us or what Jesus has already done uh, in his death on the cross and in his resurrection, and rightfully so. But in receiving what he has done and in following him, it will cost you everything. Jesus makes this clear in Luke chapter nine when he says, if you wanna be my disciple, if you wanna come after me, you have to carry your cross daily which is another way of saying you you need to die. You you need to die to yourself and your plans and your aspirations. See, Jesus' call to follow him is not a call to just add Jesus onto your life as if you've got this this recipe for happiness and he's one ingredient among many. Jesus isn't an an accessory or an add-on. He's the king of kings. And his call for you, his call for me is to die. It's called to give up our lives, give up our plans, give up control, submit and follow him. There's a cost. Yet with Jesus, he's always worth the cost. Now, what does this have to do with 1 Samuel 20? Uh, Well, as we walk through this very long chapter, we're going to be confronted with this question. What does your obedience to God cost you? Or to put it maybe a different way, uh, what does it mean if your obedience to God isn't costly? What if your obedience to God doesn't demand any sacrifice? I'm gonna connect the dots for us as we walk through uh, 1 Samuel 20. There are five sections I see in this chapter. We're just gonna walk through uh, each of them this morning. Here's the first one. We noticed in these first couple of verses a, a proposal that is made. Now. When we think about 1 Samuel 20, there's no other chapter in all of 1 Samuel that portrays the friendship between Jonathan and David as much as this one. That their commitment, their loyalty, their love, their their sacrifice is on display. In verses one through 11, it, it zooms in on this conversation that is shared between them on the heels of chapter 19. We know from last week, chapter 19, Saul's repeated attempts to kill David. Verse one tells us that David left Ramah, it's where Samuel was, and he, he comes to Jonathan. These first few verses, it's clear that David is, is, is distressed and rightfully so. Most powerful man in the country is hunting him, trying to kill him, who just so happens to be his father-in-law. But notice the questions that David asks Jonathan. He says, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father? You can see David's trying to make sense of Saul's madness. It's not lining up for David why Saul wants to kill him, but also notice David's humility. Remember, David is also the author of Psalm 139, who declared to the Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart, know my thoughts. See if there's any wickedness in me. We see that same humble, open, and meek heart as David asks his friend, where is my sin in all of this? Point out where I have done wrong. Jonathan's trying to console. David assures him you've done nothing wrong, but David is clearly shaken up. In verse three, he describes his condition as there being one step between him and death. David is not in a good place. He feels the weight of his dire circumstances and he's looking to Jonathan for a way out. Jonathan being the close friend that he is, he's offering his loyalty, basically says, whatever you want me to do, just name it and I will do it. And so verses five through seven, we see this proposal that David makes to Jonathan trying to figure out where is Saul in all of this? What are his, his intentions toward me? Does he still want to kill me? Now for us as the reader, uh, that, that's, it's easy to conclude where Saul stands with David, right? We spent all of last chapter highlighting these different ways Saul has been trying to kill David. It's obvious to us, but it's complicated for David. Saul is David's father-in-law. He's the father of his best friend. David is Israel's hero. And so it's not quite matching up for David. It's complicated. So David's proposal for trying to figure out where Saul stands is this, is that the new moon, uh, which is an occasion for various fest- festivities, it also included a, a three-day festival with these, these celebratory important dinners each day. David was still, you know, Saul's son-in-law. He's Israel's war here. So he's expected to sit at the table of King Saul and dine with him. So David's plan is that he's going to be absent from these dinners in order to force Saul's hand. Okay, so his absence would draw curiosity and so Jonathan and David are talking about, okay, Jonathan, how are you going to respond when Saul asks about my absence? And, and Jonathan and, and David basically come up with this, this reasoning that, oh, David went to Bethlehem because, uh, because his family is performing an important sacrifice there. And so based on Saul's response, David and Jonathan would conclude where Saul stands If Saul misses David, then things are good. If he gets angry for whatever reason, then it's clear on their end that Saul wants to harm David. Okay, simple proposal, simple plan. And yet we can already see that this is going to put Jonathan in a dangerous position. This is going to put Jonathan in a costly position, especially if Saul connects the dots. Well, the conversation between David and Jonathan continues, uh, and in verses 8 through 17, we now find what is driving this proposal. We're going to learn why David is going to ask Jonathan to risk his own safety and work with David. Notice uh, right after the proposal in verses 5 through 7, verse 8, the very first word in that verse is, therefore... That word is being used to link the proposal with the motivation. David is essentially saying, I'm asking you, Jonathan, to, to stick your neck out there for me. And here's why. Look at verse eight with me. David says, deal kindly with your servants for you have brought your servant, referring to himself, into a covenant of the Lord with you. Okay, again, this answers the question, why David would even ask Jonathan to side with him rather than his own father, it's because of this covenant that Jonathan has made with David that we learned and saw back in chapter 18, verse three. So David is now asking Jonathan to be faithful toward him because of this promise, because of this covenant. This is a powerful moment, very powerful moment. It kind of gives us chills thinking about what is happening in this conversation. David's world is falling apart. He has nowhere else to turn. Safety and security are quickly becoming memories of the past. So where will David turn? What will he rely upon? Well, here David is in search of a committed kindness. He's in search of a loyal love, one that is grounded in this covenantal relationship that only exists because of the Lord, as he says in verse eight. David is appealing to Jonathan to act with this devoted love because of this covenant that he's made to David. And as we'll see, Jonathan does what needs to be done. And yet thinking about this idea, and even in verse 14, Jonathan will actually call their love and their treatment towards one another as evidence of the steadfast love of the Lord. What does this remind us of? What is this ultimately pointing us to? This is pointing us to God. This is pointing us to God's steadfast love toward his people, God's committed kindness toward you and toward me. Yes, 1 Samuel 20, should cause us to marvel at this amazing friendship, but it's no comparison to the faithful, committed love of God toward us. In fact, this friendship between David and Jonathan would not exist without the steadfast love of the Lord. In fact, the phrase there in verse eight, deal kindly, it actually is, it comes from this popular Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed is a term that's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. It's predominantly used in talking about God's uh, steadfast love for his people. Other translations have faithful love or a loyal loving kindness. And this hesed, this word, it carries the idea of love and compassion and, and affection, but it's mixed in with loyalty and commitment and faithfulness. It's an amazing idea that it's not merely love, but it's loyal love. It's not merely kindness, but it's dependable kindness. It's not merely mercy, but it's a committed mercy. That Hesed expresses both God's loyalty to his people and his love for his people, but also his faithfulness to keep his promises. This is who God is. We see even this idea of God and his loving kindness in in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter two. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice what this is saying. Verse seven there, the the word so that, this is declaring that the whole reason for the gospel, the, the reason why God sent Jesus to save us is so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. That God sent his one and only son to be brutally tortured, to die on the cross, even though he was innocent, so that he might display his hesed toward his people, his steadfast loving kindness. Oh, and don't forget about Romans chapter two, verse four, where it says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It doesn't say it's God's wrath that leads us to repentance or God's holiness that leads us to repentance. Although those are, those are ideas that it's part of the repentance process. This is God's kindness that melts the hardness of our hearts and draws us back to himself. It's God's steadfast love that, that woos us back into right relationship with him. And it's a loving kindness that we don't deserve. This is all about grace. Look how amazing our God is. Look at how we see God's love transform people, transform this friendship between David and Jonathan. That like David, when we go through seasons in which it feels so disorienting, Uh, Seasons where we're filled with fear, where it feels like our worlds are falling apart, that there is something that we can depend upon. There is something sure, something reliable, something that is unchanging. It is the steadfast love of the Lord, that he is our dependable refuge. He's the one who's bound himself to his people because of the gospel, and because that's true, we can expect, fully expect to receive hessed from God because his love, it flows out of his nature, flows out of his unchanging character. It doesn't love you because of you or because of your circumstances, but because of himself. One commentator wrote this way. He said that you will never perish when you fall into the abyss of God's faithfulness loving kindness. I love that. Well, it's on this basis of this covenant that David asked Jonathan to treat him with this love and with this faithful kindness in verse eight. As we move through this conversation, we notice that they continue to converse about David's innocence. And then they, they basically realize that this plan of theirs, it needs to be baked out a little further David has a question in verse 10. Basically, how will I know of Saul's intentions if he's angry? How can I basically be sure that that's gonna get back to me? And so they need to talk further about this plan. So they go somewhere more private. Verse 11, they go to a field. Verses 12 through 16, Jonathan takes over the conversation. He doesn't first immediately answer David's question in full. Notice what he begins to talk about. Jonathan wants to clarify how he sees the future playing out, which is such an interesting response to David's pressing question. Verses 12 through 16 lay out for us, they reveal what Jonathan believes to be true about the future reign of David's dynasty. It's a a strange place to go in the midst of, of what they're walking through. And basically what Jonathan says in verse 12, he says, if Saul is good with you, I'll come back and tell you. Verse 13, if Saul wishes harm on you, I'll find a way to disclose that to you somehow. But notice the second half of verse 13. Jonathan turns their gaze upward, turns their gaze toward the Lord. He says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. What does he mean by this? Well, we are to understand these words of Jonathan to express his confidence that David will be king, that David will be God's king. And then verse 14, he declares to David, hey, if I'm still alive, then please show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Do not cut me off of your steadfast love and your house forever. And then they have this covenant in verse 16. This is astonishing what's happening here. Remember the the context of David basically now becoming a fugitive. Verse 15, Jonathan sees David's kingdom as not only being established, but every one of David's enemies being cut off, including Saul. Jonathan is seeing David's kingship in the future more clearly than even David at this point in time. David sees his present circumstances dominated by the threats of King Saul. Jonathan, though, finds himself being dominated by the future reign of his best friend, David. It's amazing. And Jonathan bases his request of David, please show steadfast love to me. He bases all of that in this idea of hesed, this idea of this loving kindness and mercy of the Lord. Do you see the reversal that's, that's happening in this conversation. While it was David who was asking for Hesed in verse 8, now it's Jonathan asking for it in verse 14. In verse 17, David swears again his love for Jonathan, that he loved him as he loved his own soul. Well, despite these faith-filled and future-forward words by Jonathan, verse 18 reminds us of their present crisis. David's question in verse 10 hasn't been fully answered yet in regards how they're going to find out if, if, if Saul is really angry with David. So verses 18 through 23, they, uh, they create the arrow plan, if you will. Jonathan lays out <clears throat> a stealthy means by which he can, he can inform David of Saul's intentions uh, by having David go into hiding, He goes and he hides by the stone heap, which is just some natural rocks or a heap of ruins served as a really effective hiding place. And Jonathan's gonna take these three arrows and with a young boy, uh, he's gonna shoot these arrows. And depending on what he tells the young boy as the boy goes and retrieves these arrows, that would secretly communicate the message to David. So if he yells out to the boy after shooting the arrows, oh, I I shot to to the side, that would tell David, okay, things are safe, you can come home. But if he yells out, "Oh, I shot beyond you. I was way off the target." That would tell David things are not safe. You need to run. You need to get out of here. Now, they're being they're they're doing this in secrecy because again, they just don't feel safe. They're assuming that Saul's men are watching them. But man, I love Jonathan here. I love how Jonathan is so God centered in this whole conversation. Up until this point, he has mentioned the Lord eight different times. His God centeredness culminates in verse 23, the closing verse of this scene, where he says, For the matter of which we have spoken about, the Lord is between you and me forever. This matter that he's referencing is David's reign as king, this lifelong covenant. And he's saying is that in God's timing, because God is in control, he's going to make this happen. God is the glue for this relationship. He's gonna make these things happen. And can I just say how important it is to have a God-centered perspective, especially in moments of trial and crisis? Fear and anxiety is, is essentially envisioning a future devoid of God's goodness. That's essentially what fear and anxiety are. And so it's paramount that when crisis hits, that you look to God. It's paramount that when you're walking through the unknown, when you're walking through a situation where you're like, I have no idea how this is gonna play out, for your knee-jerk response to look upward at God and to declare to your own soul, there is God's goodness here right now in this season. This is what Jonathan's doing for his friend, David. He's reminding him, even in the midst of incredible trials, God is with you. We come to the climax of this chapter, the table scene. Drama is dripping from this tension-filled dinner. This might be too soon to say. But this scene might remind some of us of what Thanksgiving was like, uh, even the last couple of days. (laughs) On a more serious note, isn't it family, where it it presents the hardest of challenges to live out the gospel? (laughs) I find that to be true. Hopefully they're not listening right now. (laughs) But there's there's nothing like family that, that tends to surface, just tensions and frustrations Emotionally stirring situations. It exposes our own stuff, is what happens, right? Exposes our own struggles. In verses 24 through 34, this is exactly what happens. We get an inside look at the dysfunction of Saul's family, mainly because of Saul himself. And remember, the plan is in place. David is hiding out in the field. Dinner is ready. And verse 25, it paints the scene for us perfectly. Saul is in his usual seats back is up against the wall so he can see everything. Remember, he's paranoid, wants to make sure there's no surprise attack. Jonathan sat opposite of him. And you have Abner, who we were introduced several chapters ago. Remember, he's Saul's cousin. He's also the commander of the army right next to Saul. All is as it should be, except David's spot was unoccupied. This is part of their plan, right? Everything's set in motion. Saul, of course, notices David's absence, didn't say anything because according to verse 26, he just concluded David was unclean, which, which would have explained his absence. Participating in these kinds of, of, of festivals, this was a religious festival, it required everybody present there to be ceremonially clean. And according to Leviticus 11 through 15, there are a number of just ordinary experiences that could make one unclean for a brief time. This is what Saul assumed happened to David. But then you get to verse 27. This is where things begin to turn. The temperature in the room begins to increase dramatically. On day two, again, everything's arranged as the previous night. David is absent once again. Saul puts his son on the spot, pointedly asks him about David's absence and Jonathan has that response. Remember, Jonathan David, they, they were on the same page about how he was going to respond to him. It tells Saul, oh, David had to go back to his hometown in Bethlehem for this important sacrifice. No big deal. Saul doesn't buy it. We're not exactly sure why Saul didn't buy it. Uh, we're not told. Uh, maybe, you know, as a father, he can just tell when his son's being deceptive or, or lying Uh, Maybe it's because David chose his own family over Saul's family for this dinner. Maybe it's just because Saul wants to kill him. And so anything that looked off, it's gonna make things look suspicious. Who knows? But Saul loses it. Verses 30 through 31, Saul goes off on Jonathan, calls him names, says his kingdom will never be established. And in their relationship, he, he tells Jonathan some of the worst things he could have said to his own son. Then he commands Jonathan, go and bring David to me. Jonathan pushes back though. Verses 32, he says, what has David done? Again, he's he's emphasizing David's innocence, which will become a theme over the next several chapters. That question, what has David done? We'll see that a few more times. Saul has no response, verbally at least, to that question. He hurls a spear at his own son. This tells Jonathan everything he needs to know about Saul's intentions. Results in Jonathan not eating the entire day. Do you see the cost of obedience here? Do you see the cost of faithfulness on display by Jonathan? He's already given up the throne. He's, He's already given up being the heir apparent to rule the kingdom. And he's now clearly siding with his father's enemy, which means he's going to be on the outs with the rest of the family. And now he's putting his life in danger. The cost of obedience, it's all over this chapter. David, he's, he's hiding in the shadows somewhere in some field. He's gonna become this fugitive for the next several years, always living on the run, always facing the constant threats of danger presumably. He doesn't come home, not sure how he sees his family, not sure where his next meal will come from. David's road is filled with uncertainty, with risk. Jonathan and David's example, it, it challenges us to reflect on our own obedience to God. What costs, what sacrifices are we willing to face in order to stay committed to God? Are, are we willing to to endure hardship and sacrifice and uncertainties and and potential challenges for the sake of obedience. Maybe you face this in the workplace on a daily basis because you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you face this at school with with classmates and maybe teachers, other people who don't follow Jesus. Maybe you face this with your neighbors or, or family members. There is a cost, and this cost is going to continue to increase as we remain faithful to the Lord. So what do we need to be reminded of? When faced with cost, we actually need to be reminded of Saul's words here in verse 31. They are unintentionally very profound. Saul doesn't mean these words the way that he says them, but they're really good to remind ourselves. He tells Jonathan, "Your kingdom will not be established. Yes and amen. That is a message that you and I need to preach to ourselves every single day. That when I get up in the morning and I look myself in the mirror, as I'm brushing my my teeth, I say, Chris Beals, your kingdom will not be established. Saul doesn't mean it that way, I get that. But for us, this is awesome for us to be reminded that the kingdom of self, the kingdom of me, will not be established today. That you're not the king, you're not the queen. Life does not revolve around you. You are not the center of the universe. We are not the rulers. We serve and we live for the true king and his name is Jesus. That we live for his kingdom. And this will inevitably Lead to dying to yourself. This will inevitably lead to giving up your dreams, giving up your control, giving up your comforts, giving up your plans and your aspirations, laying them all down at the feet of Jesus and saying, not what I want, but what you want, oh Jesus. Right, Jesus, how do you want me to use my time? How do you want me to use my energy? How do you want me to use the resources that you've given me? I'm not living for myself. I'm living for King Jesus. And living for Jesus, we will always lead to giving things up. There's always a cost. But remember, whenever you give something up for Jesus, what you get in return is always, always better. Jesus is always worth the cost. So what is your obedience to God truly Costing you. Well, as we close the scene, uh, per David and Jonathan's plan, it's now time to relay the secret message. Uh, Along with the young boy, Jonathan shoots those arrows, basically tells the boy to get lost. And they now have a few moments alone together. And verses 41 and 42 are gut-wrenching. This is one of the most moving farewell scenes among friends that you'll ever find. They're gonna see each other in a couple of chapters, but in this moment, they don't know that. And so their, their goodbye is filled with emotion. They're, they're crying, they're, they're kissing, which, which was uh, an appropriate way to show affection among friends during this time period. But again, they're crying and they're heartbroken because they feel the weight of the cost the cost of being obedient to God. They've given up their comfort now. They're giving up their safety for Jonathan. He's given up the throne. But now they're gonna give up aspects of their friendship in order to be faithful to God. As we close, we have to wrestle with this question. What will enable faithfulness to God? What will fuel you to be obedient to God when it's costly? The answer to that is God's steadfast, faithful love. There's nothing else. It's God's hesed. It's knowing that at the end of the day, whatever our obedience costs us, it's knowing that that whatever it is that we gave up, it fails in comparison to the treasure that we have in God. And God's unmovable, faithful, and steadfast love toward us, that it's always, always worth it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we do praise you for this remarkable scene, this scene that is filled with sacrifice and cost and and hardship, and yet there is a commitment to being obedient to you. Lord, I pray that you would use this passage as we think about our own obedience to you and and Lord, the the various ways, Lord, that we choose comforts, over being faithful to you. Choose the easy way out. We give in to temptation. We, we don't speak up when the, the moment is right. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, no matter the cost, be faithful to you and that your faithful love toward us would fuel that. Lord, help us to dive deeper into that great love which you displayed in Jesus that you've lavished upon us. We thank you for it in Christ's name, amen. Amen.